This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the summer of 1969, Muhammad Ali was one of the most controversial figures on the planet. The boxer's strength and charisma, which had made him an international celebrity, were now elevating him beyond the realm of sports into the cross-section of religion, politics, and race. Right now, Ali was touring the country. He sold out auditoriums to discuss Vietnam with college students and even starred in a Broadway musical entitled Buck White. The world-class boxer, it seemed, was doing everything except boxing. Well, that's because he couldn't. In a severe punishment from the World Boxing Organization, Muhammad Ali, the champ who had never lost a fight, had been stripped of his world championship title in 1967 after he refused to fight in the Vietnam War. Additionally, they'd revoked his boxing license and prevented him from competing. Many Americans viewed Ali as a draft dodger, refusing to serve the country that had made him rich and famous. His unwavering support of the Nation of Islam also made enemies for Ali among the more conservative-minded. But at the same time, other Americans were beginning to see Ali as a new kind of champion, an underdog who had put everything on the line in order to stand up for his beliefs. To quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whatever you think of Muhammad Ali's religion, you certainly have to admire his courage. Ali would eventually be embraced as a crusader for civil liberties and personal freedom. In time, this would catapult Ali back into the ring, where he could attempt to reclaim his champion status. By the time he was finally allowed to box again, Ali had lost three of the best fighting years of his life. But he wasn't done. Far from it. For Muhammad Ali was on his way to becoming a true champion, not just of boxing, but of the world. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our 
audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today we're discussing boxer, activist, and philanthropist Muhammad Ali. Recognized the world over for his physical prowess, personal charisma, and the sacrifices he made for his beliefs, Ali is regarded as one of the most important figures of the 20th century. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. On July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Before we begin, it's important to note Muhammad Ali rejected his birth name, Cassius Clay, in 1964. While we fully acknowledge and respect this decision, we will be calling him Cassius Clay in this episode until 1964 for the purposes of clarity. We will refer to him as Muhammad Ali from then on. And now, back to the life of the greatest, the prettiest, the heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. in 1942. He was named for his father, Cassius Sr., who in turn was named after Cassius Marcellus Clay, a 19th century plantation owner who joined the abolitionist movement, freed his family's slaves, and dedicated his life to furthering the cause of emancipation after the Civil War. Though his namesake came from a legacy of liberation and the fight for equality, Cassius Clay Jr. saw little of either in his early life. He was born in Louisville, Kentucky during the Jim Crow era and faced discrimination and hardship on a daily basis. Still, Clay learned from his parents to take pride in his name. His mother, Odessa, a domestic helper, liked to believe that the Clay name connected their family to Kentucky royalty, even though segregation had forced them to live in Louisville's impoverished West Side. Cassius Clay Sr. was a musician, painter, skirt chaser, and a generally combative man. Cassius Clay Jr., it would seem, inherited this urge to fight from his father. As he grew older, he went looking for ways to vent the aggression. In 1954, a 12-year-old Clay was exiting a market when he found that his prized possession, a beautiful red and white Schwinn bike, had been stolen. He was furious. That bike had cost $50, over $400 today. He resolved then and there to find the thief and punish him, no matter what it took. According to his autobiography, the greatest, my own story, Clay heard that a policeman named Joe Martin could help him recover his bike. 
Clay set out immediately to the nearby Columbia Gym, where Martin led a weekly boxing clinic for neighborhood boys. In his own words, Clay was entranced the minute he entered the gym. The smell of sweat and the rough sounds of sparring excited him for reasons he didn't quite understand. He found Officer Martin and told him he was going to find the bicycle thief and beat him up. Martin, no stranger to the misplaced aggression of young boys, challenged Clay to get in the ring instead. It's likely Martin recognized Clay's boxing potential. He was tall for his age, with a long reach. It's also likely that, as a community organizer, Martin was looking to channel Clay's aggression into a more productive outlet. Whatever the reason, when Clay left that night, Martin tapped him on the shoulder and said, We got boxing every night, Monday through Friday, from 6 to 8. Here's an application in case you want to join. According to Muhammad Ali researcher and biographer Jonathan Eig, the young champ was fascinated to see, quote, black kids and white kids in the ring together. He realized what Martin was trying to teach him. If the person who stole the bike turned out to be white and Clay retaliated, he could go to jail or worse. In Joe Martin's ring, however, there were no repercussions for striking a white boxer. This would have been truly mind-boggling for the 12-year-old Clay. Race didn't matter. Segregation didn't matter. Nothing outside of the ring mattered. There was only the fight. Cassius Clay Jr. took Martin up on his offer to start training. At first, he was, well, not great. According to Joe Martin, Clay, quote, didn't know a left hook from a kick in the ass, end quote. Granted, Clay was fighting an older, more experienced kid, but after one minute of wild flailing, Clay was pulled from the ring with a bloody nose. Despite this first lousy sparring session, he continued to box. He went back to the clinic day after day and became the hardest worker in Martin's gym. Six weeks later, the 12-year-old Clay had improved so much that Martin arranged for him to fight on the television show Tomorrow's Champions, which was broadcast all over the state. Clay was pitted against Ronnie O'Keefe, another novice boxer. This was his first publicized fight, and he won it by split decision. After the match aired, Cassius Clay Sr. reportedly exclaimed, My son is going to be another Joe Lewis, the world heavyweight champion Cassius Clay. With the support of his family, Clay wholly dedicated himself to boxing. As he worked diligently with his trainer, Fred Stoner, however, his schoolwork suffered considerably. His teachers didn't know it at the time, but Cassius Clay Jr. suffered from dyslexia. It would be decades before teachers would be trained to recognize students with learning disabilities. So, unfortunately, many of his teachers simply labeled him as dumb. In his own words, Clay knew college wasn't an option for him. He likely dedicated himself to boxing so completely because, for the first time in his life, he'd found something he truly excelled at. He barely finished high school, ranking in the bottom 5% of his class. Over the course of his late teens, though, Clay racked up victories. By the end of the 1950s, 18-year-old Cassius Clay Jr. had won six Kentucky Golden Glove championships. He'd made a name for himself among the local circuit as a big man who moved impossibly quick. Maybe a little too quick. His coach, Joe Martin, 
says he tried to teach the young Cassius Clay Jr. how to block punches and how to duck, but he refused to learn these most basic of boxing skills. Clay's reflexes were so instinctively fast that he simply moved his head the moment before an opponent could make contact. This technique wouldn't always work, but at the start of his career, it distinguished him from nearly every other fighter. Another natural ability was his lightning-fast jab. Fighters nearly always underestimated it because of how light it looked. But over time, it wore every one of them down, advancing Clay to the international spotlight as, at the age of 18, he was selected to compete in the 1960 Olympic Games in Rome, Italy. Unfortunately, he almost missed his flight. As it turns out, the man who would come to be known as the greatest boxer of all time was scared of flying. He was so afraid of it that he actually considered missing the Olympics just to avoid getting on a plane. It was Martin who convinced Clay to go. Martin appealed to his ambition. If he really wanted to win, to be a champion, he needed to compete in the Olympics. Clay conceded, though he took a detour on his way to the airport to buy a parachute from an army surplus store. He would get on the plane, but he wasn't going to take any chances. He arrived in Rome and won his first three Olympic bouts easily. In his final fight, he struggled slightly against the three-time European champion, Zbigniew Piotrkowski, but was awarded the victory by unanimous verdict. At the age of 18, Clay Jr. had obtained what most athletes only dream of, an Olympic gold medal. He should have returned to Louisville a hero, but instead... He was greeted with the same racism and bigotry he had always known. After being refused service at a counter in his hometown, Clay became disillusioned with his Olympic victory. While it was a measure of his athletic prowess, it had hardly validated him in the eyes of his detractors. Clay had valued the medal because he thought it validated him in the eyes of others. He had represented his country honorably, and yet still was subject to derision and abuse from bigots. As Clay rose to prominence, he vowed to never again hold himself to someone else's expectations, not his coaches, not his families, and certainly not his racist neighbors from Louisville. He was going to be whatever fighter he wanted to be. When we come back, a legend unfolds. A crusade begins... And Cassius Clay becomes Muhammad Ali. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1960, the 18-year-old Cassius Clay returned to his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, an Olympic champion. Despite the racism and bigotry he experienced there on a daily basis, Clay did find some support in his segregated hometown. A group of local businessmen, it turns out, had decided to sponsor Clay's boxing career. He would be given a weekly salary, something virtually unheard of for boxers at the time. 
It was during these tours in 1960 that Clay attended his first meeting at a temple of the Nation of Islam. He'd heard about the gathering from a street canvasser and would later say that at that meeting, he finally heard the truth. Clay had known for some time that something was missing in his life. After his first exposure to Islam, he realized what it was, spirituality. He started studying the religion and took his first steps toward becoming a dedicated Muslim practitioner. At the same time, Clay struggled to craft a public persona that matched his ambitions. He'd won his fair share of fights and an Olympic gold medal, but he hadn't yet learned how to pack seats and sell out stadiums, something he'd have to do if he wanted to become the greatest. In June of 1961, while promoting a fight in Las Vegas, Clay had a run-in with famous professional wrestler Gorgeous George. Clay shared a radio appearance with George and was intrigued by the 46-year-old entertainer. What was unique about Gorgeous George was how he would berate his opponents before, during, and after the match. He was vain, he was disrespectful, and the audience couldn't get enough of it. Clay learned from George the value of playing a certain kind of character inside and outside the ring. Clay took to his new persona. During interviews, he would recite poems about his own greatness, then insult his opponents, calling them ugly or stupid. Some fans were enthralled and bought tickets to see if Clay was as good as he said. Other fans were incensed. They bought tickets to root against Clay. Fans started showing up in droves, which in turn raised the prices of tickets and put more money in Clay's pocket. Clay was delighted to make money off of people who rooted against him because of his race. He later said he no longer minded their jeering. As soon as they were done, he'd take their money and be laughing all the way to the bank. For years, Clay continued on in this way blazing a trail of victories, becoming more and more entertaining and more and more provocative. Finally, in 1964, at the age of 22, Clay had an undefeated record of 19-0. He insisted that no one could beat him and demanded his shot at true greatness. He wanted to fight the current heavyweight champion of the world, Sonny Liston. Liston was the kind of boxer Clay's sponsors didn't want him to be. In addition to being a professional boxer, Liston was also a mob enforcer with the backing of the mafia. As intimidating as he was, he was the man Clay needed to beat if he wanted the heavyweight championship. But before he could even fight Liston, Clay needed him to accept the challenge. To persuade him, Clay started following Liston, first to a casino and then to Liston's home in Denver. He taunted Liston, demanding a match. Eventually, perhaps only to get Clay to stop, Liston agreed to fight. The boxer from Louisville had successfully baited the heavyweight champion of the world into the ring. Clay had an undefeated record going into the match, but he'd never faced a fighter with Liston's experience. Clay's record was 19-0 compared to Liston's 35-2. While Clay had 16 knockouts, Liston had 32, twice as many. Pundits generally agreed that Cassius Clay was a glorified TV personality, while Liston was a real boxer, merciless and mean. 
polls leading up to the fight overwhelmingly predicted Liston would win by a knockout. Vegas gave Clay 7-1 to one odds, and most people said he wouldn't make it past the third round. Clay, however, never doubted himself. He even publicly predicted he would knock Liston out in the eighth round. At the weigh-in for the championship fight, Clay's heart beat erratically as he continued to taunt Liston for the cameras. To many people, it looked like he was buckling under intense pressure. Many people had predicted that Liston was going to kill Clay in the ring. This was not uncommon at the time, particularly in title fights. Davey Moore, for example, had died in his dressing room the year before in 1963 after losing the World Featherweight Championship match. The year before that, fighter Benny Peratt had died after a welterweight championship fight. Boxers made their living by pushing themselves to the absolute limit. Sadly, they sometimes pushed themselves too far. Now, in 1964, it looked like Clay was doing the same. After his weigh-in, people began to suspect he was losing his mind. Nobody knew what to think, least of all Liston. However, Clay would later tell his doctor, Ferdy Pacheco, that this was all part of a calculated plan to topple Liston. Quote, Liston is scared of no man, Clay explained, but he is scared of a nut because he doesn't know what I am going to do. It seems that Clay had been playing mind games with Liston ever since first taunting him in Las Vegas, and he wasn't going to stop until the title was his. When Cassius Clay Jr. entered the ring on February 25, 1964, no one thought he stood a chance. His opponent, Sonny Liston, however, was the slightest bit rattled. At six foot three, Clay was taller than Liston. He had a longer reach, and he was younger, faster. It would be best for Liston to go for the knockout quickly, as everyone expected. As the fight began, Liston threw punch after punch at Clay's head, but Clay dodged every attack, all the while delivering powerful jabs of his own. He had revealed his strategy for the fight in press conferences weeks ago. I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. Throughout the match, Clay played head games, strutting around the ring, even yawning. In the fifth round, however, Clay suddenly found himself in blinding pain. Something had gotten into his eyes. According to his trainer, Angelo Dundee, it was a caustic substance. It suspected that this substance was oil of wintergreen, which Liston would have rubbed onto his gloves illegally to injure Clay. In the biggest fight of his life, Clay suddenly couldn't see a thing. But Clay didn't let on. At the top of the sixth, he charged back into the ring, managing to land several devastating blows. After Liston retired to his corner at the end of the round, he refused to come back out. Claiming a shoulder injury, Liston conceded the title he had protected for over two years to Cassius Clay. The world was stunned, but Clay simply repeated what he'd been saying all along. I'm the greatest. He had finally proved it. Leaping up on the ropes, Clay pointed into the face of every reporter in the front row and kept saying over and over, I told you so. 
The next day, the world was stunned a second time as Cassius Clay officially announced in a press conference that he had joined the lost found nation of Islam, otherwise known as the Black Muslim Movement. He was renouncing his slave name of Clay. For the time being, he would be called Cassius X. A month later, Cassius informed the world that Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam, had conferred a new name upon him. He would forever be known as he who is worthy of praise most high. That, of course, is what his new name meant, Muhammad Ali. According to Angelo Dundee, Ali's longtime trainer, Muhammad Ali liked how strong the Nation of Islam looked to outsiders. Like many black men of his generation, the Nation of Islam also validated him as an individual. The religion celebrated the black individual, citing white people, i.e., quote, the white devil, end quote, as the root of all suffering for black people the world over. This strong stance alienated Ali from a lot of Americans, but the champ didn't care. In one interview, he famously stated, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I'm free to be who I want to be and think what I want to think. People all over the world, including Odessa and Cassius Clay Sr., believe that Ali was being brainwashed and manipulated by Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam because of his status as a celebrity. Ali maintained, however, time and time again, that their relationship was mutually beneficial and that Ali never paid the Nation of Islam any money. It was amidst this controversy, in July of 1964, Ali met and fell in love with a cocktail waitress named Sanji Roy. The two were introduced by Ali's manager, Herbert Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad, and married a month later in August 1964. Ali was 22, Sanji Roy, 23. Eventually, the World Boxing Council ordered a rematch between Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston due to Liston's abrupt concession in the previous fight. On May 25, 1965, Ali faced off against Liston for the second time to defend his championship title. The first time the two fought, Liston had been painted as the villain. Now, the tables were turned, and it was Ali, because of his religion, who was scorned by the press and the public. Ali gloated that now, 15 months after their first fight, he was the batter of the two men. Media coverage aside, the fight itself proved to be one of the most controversial displays in the history of boxing. To this day, many people believe it was rigged. That's because in the first round, after only two minutes, Liston was knocked down by what looks to be a fairly light punch from Ali. This singular blow, now famous, has been dubbed the Phantom Punch. It was called Phantom because most people never even saw it. Boxing professionals had to review footage from the fight to confirm that Ali even made contact with Liston. Upon closer examination, The phantom punch seems to have been thrown from a distance of six inches, a span many argue was too close to knock out Liston. According to accounts provided by Nick Toshes in The Devil and Sonny Liston, Ali himself didn't even believe the knockout at first. He shouted down to Liston, 
Get up, sucker. Nobody will believe this. In the years since the fight, many have supposed that Liston had taken a dive to benefit his friends in the mafia. Others claim Liston was afraid of what the Nation of Islam might do to him for taking the title from one of their most prized members. Liston wasn't the only person scared off by Ali's faith. Just months after the fight, Ali's wife, Sanji, left him after less than two years of marriage. According to Ali, Sanji, quote, wouldn't do what she was supposed to do. She wore lipstick, went into bars, and dressed in clothes that were revealing and didn't look right, end quote. As often as Ali asked her to observe a stricter behavioral code in accordance with the Muslim faith, she refused. Sanji had never been a submissive woman, and she and Ali were destined to grow apart. When asked about the divorce years later, Sanji described her struggle with the Nation of Islam by saying, quote, I wasn't going to take on all the Muslims. If I had, I probably would have ended up dead. Despite his pending divorce and an increasing public backlash, Ali had what he'd always wanted, a championship. Though reporters refused to write his chosen name in the paper, he continued to win fight after fight, showing particular malice to anyone who called him Cassius Clay. On more than one occasion, Ali would actually refuse to knock out a dissenting opponent until they acknowledged his name was Muhammad Ali. The most notable example of this is Ernie Terrell, whom Ali nearly killed in the ring as he repeated over and over, What's my name? What's my name? Then, in February 1966, Ali was blindsided by the toughest opponent he would ever fight, the U.S. government. Without warning, Ali was reclassified as 1A, meaning he was to be drafted into the Vietnam War. Several years earlier, Ali had taken a mental aptitude exam to discern his eligibility for military service. Because of his dyslexia and near illiteracy, Ali scored too low on the test to qualify for service and was classified 1Y in 1964. However, in 1966, because of a growing need for soldiers, the minimum eligibility score for the test Ali failed was lowered, and he was suddenly eligible for service, without a retest or notification of any kind. Ali found the timing of his classification highly suspect, considering he was the black, Muslim, heavyweight champion of the world, with a global platform to protest the Vietnam War and promote the Nation of Islam. He insisted this was the real reason he was now being summoned to a war he did not agree with. Despite his appeals, on April 28, 1967, Muhammad Ali was ordered to Houston, Texas to report for duty in the Vietnam War. Ali appeared before the induction board as ordered, but no one knew what he was going to do once there. If he refused to formally report, he would be charged with draft evasion, a crime that carried a $10,000 fine and a five-year jail sentence. The induction board called out the name Muhammad Ali, but he refused to step forward. The board, now nervous, called his name out again. But still, Ali refused to step forward. The board called Ali's name a third and final time. He did not step forward. Ten days later, 
Muhammad Ali was indicted by a grand jury, states across the nation began revoking his licenses to fight, and then the World Boxing Association stripped him of his title. Though he'd never lost a fight, Muhammad Ali was no longer recognized as the heavyweight champion of the world. Ali was also denied his passport during his indictment, meaning he couldn't leave the country to box abroad. Essentially, he lost the ability to fight. His entire livelihood had been taken from him, and there was a very real possibility that soon he'd be in jail. It's important to note here that the U.S. government and the World Boxing Organization are separate entities. Technically, they could never have worked together to push Muhammad Ali out of boxing. The country at large, however, had grown increasingly afraid of the Nation of Islam throughout the 60s, in part because of the violent acts that were so commonly associated with its different extremist factions. As a result, it was easy for the powers that be to make an example of Muhammad Ali. The U.S. government had shown what happened when a citizen refused to serve their country. And the World Boxing Organization? Well, they showed what happened when a champion disrupted the status quo. With both organizations bearing down on Ali with all their might, it was anything but a fair fight. Ali did have a few happy moments during this tumultuous time, however. On August 17, 1967, he married his second wife, Belinda Boyd. More dedicated to the Nation of Islam than Ali's first wife, Boyd changed her name to Kalila Camacho Ali after the wedding. Over the next several years, Kalila would bear Ali four children. With more support at home, Ali began touring the country, giving speeches on college campuses about the war, religion, and racial injustice. In addition to the outpouring of support he had received from his fellow Muslims, he was now garnering support amongst the nation's young liberal population. The whole time Ali was touring for these speaking events, he was fighting for the reinstatement of his boxing license. But it was slow going. 22 states refused to grant Ali a license. Governor of California, Ronald Reagan, even went on the record saying, that draft dodger will never fight in my state, period. According to Ali's trainer, Angelo Dundee, one thing must be taken into account when talking about Ali. He was robbed of his best years, his prime years. These were the years that passed from 1967 to 1970, when Ali the fighter would have theoretically matured into the best shape of his life. Ali's long exile from boxing finally ended when the city of Atlanta granted Ali a license to fight Californian boxer Jerry Quarry. A group of black business owners had organized the event, and Atlanta benefited tremendously from the event's publicity. To show support, influential figures such as Diana Ross, Sidney Poitier, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson flocked to what had become a red carpet spectacle. The fight itself, however, was lackluster. After two close rounds, Ali cut Quarry above the eye, and the fight was ruled a technical knockout. But the champion was back, his winning record still intact. At around this same time, Ali won a federal ruling that forced the state of New York to reinstate his boxing license. After a few tune-up fights, Ali was ready, again, to challenge the heavyweight champion of the world. 
the man who had won the title in 1970 and who was, in many ways, Ali's complete opposite, Smokin' Joe Frazier. It's almost uncanny how much these men's lives paralleled each other and how they seemed destined to meet. Ali had won Olympic gold in 1960. Frazier won the same distinction in 1964. Both men were revered as titans in the ring. And now, in one of the most unique situations to ever unfold in the world of sports, two current heavyweight champions would face off against each other, each with perfectly legitimate claims to the title. It was truly a once-in-a-lifetime event, and it would make lifelong adversaries out of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. When we come back, we'll take a look at the iconic fight between these two champions, a match that would live up to its title as the fight of the century. And now, back to the story. Muhammad Ali was scheduled to fight Joe Frazier in Madison Square Garden on March 8, 1971. At this point, he had made his final appeal against the charge of draft evasion and taken the matter all the way to the Supreme Court. If he lost the appeal, Ali would be sentenced to prison, and the fight with Frazier could be his last. The press struggled to make predictions. Ali had once been the fastest and the greatest, but that was before three years of inactivity. Frazier, on the other hand, relied on his incredible strength and lasting endurance to win. Unless Ali had maintained his stamina from years before, he was in for a serious beating. The fight of the century was true to its name. Seats were so hard to get, Frank Sinatra had to work as a cameraman just to see the fight. Ali and Frazier endured 15 brutal rounds. They found themselves evenly matched in strength and endurance. Then, for only the third time in his career, Ali was dropped to the floor by a mean left hook from Frazier. It was a close fight, but that slip helped convince the judges to declare a unanimous victory for Frazier. For the first time in his professional career, after 31 fights, Muhammad Ali had lost. He remained gracious with no taunting or excuses, and it appeared to many that the era of Ali was over. But little did the public know, after this humbling loss, Ali would go on to claim an incredible victory from the U.S. government. A few months after losing the fight of the century, in June 1971, Ali received word the Supreme Court was recognizing his status as a conscientious objector. He was no longer 1A. After four long years, he had beaten the U.S. government. According to journalists Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong, the Supreme Court justices were swayed by two things. The first was the autobiography of Malcolm X, published in 1965, which convinced some Supreme Court justices that Ali's nonviolent objections to the war were sincere. The second was the fact that no previous court had provided Ali with a reason why his status would be denied. He was arguably the most famous sports figure in the world. If the Supreme Court was going to deny his final appeal, they had best provide him with a reasonable explanation. And that's exactly when the case fell apart. 
Once the court set out to explain why Ali should be denied his appeal, it became apparent there was no good reason why Ali's religious freedom should be encroached upon. According to Woodward and Armstrong, Justice Potter Stewart was largely responsible for convincing the Supreme Court to approve Ollie's appeal in an incredible unanimous 8-0 decision. Overjoyed by the incredible victory, Ali set out once again to reclaim his world championship title. He battled Joe Frazier once again. This time, he won by unanimous decision after 12 rounds. Since Frazier had already lost his title, however, to the new heavyweight champion, George Foreman, this was simply a stepping stone for Ali. If he wanted his title back, he would now have to take it from George Foreman. On October 30th, 1974, Muhammad Ali would get that chance in the African country of Zaire in a fight dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle. Airing on HBO, it took place at 4 o'clock a.m. local time in front of 60,000 screaming fans. The fans were screaming, Ali Bumaye, which translates to Ali Kill Him. The him in that chant was George Foreman, the aggressive young boxer who admitted he actually hoped to kill people when he stepped into the ring with them. For weeks, Ali had been talking about a surprise tactic he would use on Foreman, something he had been working out with his trainer, Angelo Dundee. The night of the fight, the world watched in confusion and then disbelief as Muhammad Ali unveiled an entirely new boxing strategy, the rope-a-dope. Simply put, Ali rested as much as he could on the ropes alongside the outside of the ring, the impact of Foreman's jabs then passed through Ollie's body and was absorbed by the elasticity of the ropes. To Foreman, it looked like Ollie was tired and scared, so he continued to give everything he had to try and knock out Ollie. As Foreman became visibly fatigued, Ollie began to smile and taunt him, saying things like, Is that all you got? In the eighth round, Ali brought Foreman to the floor with a left-right combination. In a completely unexpected upset, Ali had taken back his title. For the second time in his life, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. But it still wasn't enough. Though he was once again the reigning champ, Ali still had one more name in his ledger. Joe Frazier was the only man to have beaten him, Ali needed to beat Frazier again to settle the score. In 1975, the two men would rematch in the Philippines for the Thrilla in Manila. The two equally matched boxers needed to determine once and for all who was a better fighter. And the results were difficult to watch. By all accounts, Ali and Frazier left everything they had in the ring. Those watching began to worry that the boxers would murder each other. At one point, Ali even muttered to his corner, this must be what dying feels like. Despite the pain, each boxer stood round after round, trading blows and winning points off each other, sacrificing their bodies for clear shots at one another, until Joe Frazier's corner conceded the fight before the 15th round. 
The fight was watched by a record one billion viewers and is considered by many to be the end of another era for Ali. He never fully recovered from Manila, and he found his prowess declining in the years after 1975. Doctors had warned Ali before this about the dangers of boxing. Now their warnings became only more frequent. If he continued to fight, he could develop severe neurological disorders. Undeterred, Ali continued to fight. According to his personal physician, Ferdi Pacheco, through his fights in the 70s, quote, Ali had discovered something which was both very good and very bad. Very bad in that it led to the physical damage he suffered later in his career. Very good in that it eventually got him back the championship. He discovered that he could take a punch. Gary Smith, a member of Ali's entourage, remarked, quote, The first signal of decline was in Ali's hands. Pacheco, Ali's doctor at the end of his career, began injecting them with Novocaine before fights, and the ride went on. Then the reflexes slowed. The beatings began. Many speculated it was Ali's entourage, the leeches and many hangers-on that had developed around him over the years, that were bleeding him dry. If this is true, Ali would have needed to fight just in order to pay his bills. It lends credibility to this theory that in 1976, after the thriller in Manila, Ali reportedly checked into a hotel and required 74 rooms for everyone in his group. As his lifestyle grew increasingly extravagant and his children grew older, it became harder and harder for Ali to balance work, family, and the tenets of the Nation of Islam. Before long, it was revealed to the world he'd been having an affair. In 1977, Ali filed for divorce from his second wife, Khalila Camacho Ali, with whom he had four children. She had stood by him for eight years, by all accounts supporting him as he endured the most trying time of his life. Once their divorce was final, Ali immediately married a woman by the name of Veronica Porsche. Porsche, who had been one of the poster girls for Ali's Rumble in the Jungle fight, had begun a relationship with Ali three years before, in Kinshasa, Zaire, at the age of 18. In 1977, the two were married in Los Angeles, California. The second divorce had no doubt cost Ali plenty in court fees, but he still denied he was ever hard up for money. Over the years, Ali had built various businesses and restaurants across the country. His share in these companies, he claimed, was worth millions. Whatever the reason, Ali was compelled to continue boxing. In 1978, on February 15th, 36-year-old Ali got into the ring with the young fighter, Leon Spinks. Ali expected this to be easy. It was only the eighth time Spinks had ever been in a professional fight. And yet, Spinks outmaneuvered the aging Ali in nearly every round. After 15 rounds with no knockout... Spinks was awarded a victory on points. Ali had suffered his third loss in 18 years and lost the championship title. Spinks, for his part, had just claimed a heavyweight championship faster than any boxer in history. Many believed that had Spinks been in the ring with a younger Ali, he never would have won. These same people now believed that Ali's career was over. But Ali had never cared what other people thought. 
After his loss to Spinks, Ali saw the opportunity to do something he'd always hated, train. He truly believed that if he got into his best fighting shape, he would be the first boxer in history to take a third championship title. On September 15, 1978, exactly seven months after losing his title to Leon Spinks, Muhammad Ali climbed back into the ring to take it back. He was slower than he used to be, his reflexes deadening, his breathing was labored. Many in the audience felt strange, if not sad, to see one of the greatest athletes of all time falling from grace so quickly, so desperately, so hopelessly. Like before, the fight went 15 rounds, but this time, miraculously, it was Ali who outmaneuvered Spinks. By unanimous decision, history was made as Ali was awarded the championship title for the third time. Then, in 1979, in a manner most dignified, Muhammad Ali came to an important decision. After a legendary comeback, he announced his retirement from the sport of boxing. Out of reverence for his past and concern for his future, Ali would box no more. But then, Larry Holmes came along. According to Ali, the reason he continued to fight after the thriller in Manila, the fight with Frazier which physically changed him, was because people told him not to. Anything you tell me not to do, Ali said, I'll do. The champ had an interesting point. He was told not to fight Liston. When he did, he became a champion. He was told not to fight Foreman. When he did, he became a champion. He was told not to fight Spinks, and yet, when he did, he became a champion. Is it any wonder then, when people told Ali not to fight Larry Holmes, he couldn't resist? Ali's 1980 fight with Larry Holmes is one of the truly sad moments of sports history. According to Jonathan Eig, Ali's biographer, Ali's health was quickly deteriorating at this point. Before the fight, Ali was so uncoordinated and fatigued that he was unable to touch his finger to his nose in a physical examination. Several sources have reported that prior to this fight, Ali was prescribed medication for a misdiagnosed thyroid problem. When the dose had no effect, the prescription was increased. As a result of the unnecessary medication, Ali lost 36 pounds throughout the course of his training. He later said he was, quote, weak, dazed, in a dream during his fight with Larry Holmes. Larry, a solid fighter, grew progressively devastated throughout the match, hating that he had to hurt his childhood hero. But the heavyweight champion was simply too far gone. Holmes knocked him out in the 11th round. Ali would fight one more time, 14 months later, against Trevor Burbick. Other than the fact that this was Ali's last match, the 1981 fight was largely unremarkable in every way. Burbick was declared the winner in the 10th round by unanimous decision. It was an anticlimactic finale to an incredible career. Ali retired shortly thereafter with a record of 56-5. and five. For a time, he rested on his secluded farm in Michigan before being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, a degenerative neurological disease, as a direct result of the years he'd spent in the ring. 
Following his diagnosis in 1984, Ali divorced his third wife, Veronica, and married Yolanda Williams. According to his family, he was highly contented despite his failing health. He'd accomplished everything he'd set out to and spoke of few regrets. He devoted himself to various philanthropic efforts, including a 1994 human rights mission to Vietnam, where he was welcomed as a hero. It seemed Ali was happy to spend the rest of his days away from the spotlight with the company of his wife Yolanda and his nine children. But Muhammad Ali, the self-proclaimed greatest, still had one great moment to share with the world. In 1996, in Atlanta, the same city that had hosted his legendary return to boxing, Ali found himself on the Olympic stage for the first time since 1960. He had been chosen as the athlete to light that year's Olympic torch, an incredible honor that concluded the Flames' weeks-long journey across the country. As the former champion accepted the torch and began ascending a great staircase in the last leg of the journey, the world stared in awe at Ali, now a quivering, speechless shell of his former self. The moment was simultaneously cause for celebration and reflection. American journalist Cal Fussman described the world's reaction best. Quote, There are very few people in the history of the planet who could make everybody in the world stop for a moment, forget their differences, smile, and applaud in unison. Perhaps Ali was the only one left. I wondered if there'd be anyone after. On June 3, 2016, Muhammad Ali passed away in Scottsdale, Arizona. After being hospitalized for a respiratory illness, he succumbed to septic shock. He was 74 years old. Upon hearing the news, people gathered all over the world to admire the larger-than-life Ali. Fans, friends, and family remembered the amazing achievements of the self-proclaimed greatest of all time. Now, when we look back at Ali, one of the biggest human beings to ever live, there's so much to remember. Perhaps, however, his greatest achievement has nothing to do with what he gave us and everything to do with what he gave up. To famed sports commentator Stuart Scott, the answer is simple. Quote, What made Ali revolutionary and what made him the most distinct athlete of our or any time is that he was willing to give up his career for a belief. Thanks again for tuning in to our Historical Figures Summer of 69 special. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with a new episode of Historical Figures next week. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by David Turk. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Historical Figures is written by Freddie Beckley and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.